Hello and welcome to the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you hear and you haven't done so already, please make sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcatching source. While a good review and rating won't increase our chances of being found or being a featured podcast on a podcatcher like Apple or Spotify, it will potentially help increase the odds of someone who does find the show for the first time thinking that clicking play will be a good time investment for them. And it's something you can even do while you're listening to this episode. On this episode, we're going to finish our mini-series on iconoclastic 1980s filmmaker Alex Cox by talking about his most notorious and controversial movie, Walker. As we mentioned on our previous episode, Alex Cox took a great interest in what was happening in Nicaragua in the mid-1980s. Sympathetic to the cause of the Sandinistas, Cox would visit the country in 1984 to see if conditions in the country were as bad as the American media was making them out to be. To Cox, the reports were over-exaggerated. In fact, what Cox witnessed would lead him to believe that the mainstream Western media outlets and the U.S. government's claims about the Sandinistas wanting to create a Soviet-style totalitarian regime to be outright lies, and that the American-backed Contras fighting the Sandinistas were fighting an unjust and immoral war. Cox would learn about William Walker from an article in the progressive news magazine Mother Jones, which touched on the screwed-up policies of the Reagan administration when it came to Central America, and the filmmaker knew he had to bring this story to the screen. He saw the film he was going to create was going to be a force for peace and reconciliation. With the help of his former history professor at UCLA, Cox would spend hours upon hours in the campus library taking copious notes about Walker but he also knew he wasn't the right person to write the screenplay. Enter Rudy Wurlitzer. A novelist-turned-screenwriter, Wurlitzer had already become a legend to many screenwriters when he wrote the screenplays to Monty Hellman's 1971 cult classic Two-Lane Blacktop and Sam Peckinpah's 1973 cult classic Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and then further built his reputation up with his 1984 book Slow Fade, which many people interpreted to be Wurlitzer's fictionalized account of working with Peckinpah on the James Coburn and Bob Dylan-led Western. To Cox, Wurlitzer understood the American male much better than he ever could, and could really zero in on the impulses that drive certain American men to strive for a bastardized sense of greatness. The director would pitch his potential writer on Walker's promotion of manifest destiny in Central America as having unmistakable parallels with U.S. imperialism in the 1980s, and he wanted to expose the injustices of the Civil War in Nicaragua, while also making an entertaining, dramatic narrative film. Wurlitzer was on board. Now, here's what you need to know about the real William Walker. He was not a good person, and Cox knew this. Cox knew he could not approach William Walker's story in some normal, historical, respectful, masterpiece theater kind of way. This movie had to be messed up, and that's exactly what Wurlitzer, whose writing has often been compared to Thomas Pynchon's way of exploring philosophical, sociological, and theological concepts as they relate to the American man, gave the director. So let's talk about William Wallace for a moment. Born in Nashville in May of 1824, William Walker would graduate summa cum laude from the University of Nashville at the age of 14. By the time he was 19, he had received a medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania. Then he moved to Edinburgh, Scotland to continue his studies. 
When he was 25, he was working as a doctor in Philadelphia, but he would quit medicine altogether, move to New Orleans, and start practicing the law, even though he did not attend any law school or receive any JD. But he'd quit that soon enough, and after buying a part of the New Orleans Crescent newspaper, he'd moved to San Francisco, where he became the editor of the city's Herald newspaper. It was while working at the Herald that he decided his true destiny was to hire his own private army and, through the practice of manifest destiny, take over Mexico and Central America with the intention of establishing his own private colonies. In November of 1853, he and his army attempted to take over Baja, California, where he named himself president on November 3rd, and then attempted to take over a neighboring Mexican state of Sonora, where he named himself the president on January 21st, 1854, the same day he removed himself from the presidency of Baja, California. But on May 8, 1854, his 30th birthday, advancing Mexican army forces pushed Walker and his men back into the United States. No country had recognized Walker's presidency in either territory during his brief reigns. A couple years later, Walker went all in on his next invasion scheme, Nicaragua. At this time in history, the years right before the Civil War, there was no transcontinental railway to easily get goods to the people expanding out west. There was no Panama Canal. The quickest way to get anything from the east coast to the west would be to sail from New York City down to Nicaragua. The ship would enter at the San Juan River in the Caribbean Sea and sail across Lake Nicaragua to the small port town of Rivas. Then the passengers and any goods would need to be offloaded the boats, put onto a series of stagecoaches and travel 18 and a half miles of not very good roads to get to Manzanillo on the Pacific side of the country, then load everything onto a new boat before setting sail for San Francisco. A major pain in the keister. Walker would take advantage of a Nicaraguan civil war that erupted between the ruling Democratic Party and the opposition Legitimist Party in 1854. Democratic President Francisco Castellón would send word to Walker in San Francisco that Nicaragua needed his help. But there was one small problem. The United States had taken a neutral stance concerning the war in Nicaragua. The only way that Walker could fight with Castellón and the Democrats would be to get a contract from Castellón giving Walker the ability to bring up to 300 quote-unquote colonists to the Central American country. Walker would only be able to recruit 60 men, and they left San Francisco for the then-capital city of Lyon on May 3, 1855. When Walker and his men arrived in Lyon, they would be met by another 130 local men, which would make up Walker's army. Over the next six months, Walker and his army would have a series of victories and defeats against the Legitimists until October 13, 1855, when they would conquer the Legitimists in Granada. And with that victory, Walker effectively took control of the country. He installed himself as the commander of the army and replaced Castillon as president with his own provisional president, Patricio Rivas. And all of this was documented by Charles Wilkins Weber, a well-known adventurer and journalist, as Walker knew the value of good press. In May of 1856, the U.S. President Franklin Pierce would recognize Walker's regime as the legitimate government, and two weeks later, it would be the official platform of the American Democratic Party to support Walker's effort to quote-unquote regenerate Nicaragua. 
In July, Walker would install himself as the president, and everything might have gone smoothly if Walker hadn't made two specific moves that would tick off the wealthy. First, two officials from the Accessory Transit Committee, a corporation of American companies dominated by the rich and powerful Cornelius Vanderbilt, which engaged in transporting freight and passengers across the Lake Nicaragua Isthmus, had planned on using Walker to take control of the company. It was these two men who paid for Walker and his men's trip from San Francisco to Nicaragua, and it was they who advanced him funds to pay Walker's men and keep them fed and housed during all the conflicts. So when Walker took control of the company, he seized the company's property on the pretext of Vanderbilt's violation of their charter with Nicaragua, and Walker turned it over to the two officials who had assisted him. Vanderbilt was not going to let this aggression stand, man. And then in September of 1856, trying to maintain the economy of the country and gain the support of the southern United States, Walker repealed the Nicaraguan law that outlawed slavery in the country. The American President Pierce was not happy. Aided and abetted by agents of Cornelius Vanderbilt, a coalition of Central American states led by Costa Rica started what was known as the Filibuster War against Walker and his regime. It was, for all intent and purpose, a short war. The main plan of the Allied Central American Army was to take over the San Juan River in order to cut off Walker's supplies of weapons and new recruits. Vanderbilt's main man in Nicaragua would arrive in the city of San Juan in November of 1856 to recover the steamer boats that had been taken away from Vanderbilt's control. By January of 1857, the accessory transit company was no longer nationalized by Nicaragua. Knowing he was losing his war, William Walker made a desperate move in December 1856, ordering the complete destruction of the city of Granada. Not that this move would help him or the people of Nicaragua. On May 1, 1857, Walker would surrender to Commander Charles Henry David of the United States Navy and sent back to the United States to stand trial. However, new U.S. President James Buchanan would order the release of Walker, who didn't learn a darn thing from his problems in Nicaragua, because in November, he set sail for Chile with vague plans to take over that country. But as soon as he arrived in Punta Arenas, he was once again arrested by the U.S. Navy and returned to America. And once again, President Buchanan ordered Walker's release before he could stand trial. There's a reason why Buchanan has consistently ranked as one of the three worst presidents in American history. After publishing a book in 1860 called War in Nicaragua, meant to turn negative American sentiment towards him into something more positive, Walker once again set sail for Central America, this time to the island of Rotan, about 65 miles off the northern coast of Honduras, where the local governor requested his presence because of a growing fear that Honduras would soon attempt to take the island over. But by the time Walker landed in the city of Trujillo, the British Navy was there to arrest him. The British Empire had controlled the islands in the region, and they weren't about to let some American mess with their affairs in the region. And on September 12, 1860, William Walker was executed by firing squad by the Royal Navy, and Walker would be laid to rest in one of Trujillo's local cemeteries. He was just 36 years old. Now, Cox's film would not be the first time William Walker and his story would appear in the movies. Gio Pantacorvo's 1969 movie Burn featured Marlon Brando as a British aristocrat named William Walker, and the story is partly based on Walker's Central American activities, 
but Pantacorvo would move the setting from 1856 to 1844 and make Walker's intentions in a Caribbean colony to create a slave revolt in order to serve the interests of a British sugar company. Byrne would be popular with late 1960s film critics, who were still riding high off the power of his previous film, The Battle of Algiers. Although American audiences would not make the film as successful as one would expect a Marlon Brando movie to be. So how does one compete with that? The answer? You don't. Well, sort of. Marlon Brando and Ed Harris were both five foot nine and both exuded in their prime a sort of menace that made them feel bigger than they really were. Except in 1969, Brando had been one of the biggest movie stars in the world for nearly 20 years. He had been nominated for Best Actor no less than five times between 1951 and 1957, winning in 1954 for On the Waterfront. In 1987, Ed Harris had never been a movie star. He had appeared in a number of movies, gaining critical acclaim for his performances in such films as The Right Stuff, Places in the Heart, and Sweet Dreams, but he would not be nominated for any major awards until 1995. But he was highly respected in Hollywood, which is one of the reasons Universal was willing to give Cox half of the $6 million the film was budgeted for to head down to Nicaragua and shoot a movie about a crazy American gringo upsetting the balance of Central American politics at the tail end of Ronald Reagan's America. But Cox didn't really want to work with Universal again, after his previous experiences with them on Repo Man, but the film's producer, Edward R. Pressman, sold the director on how the new studio executives were not like the ones he dealed with three years earlier, that these new executives were sympathetic to Cox's cause and they were very much willing to give Cox more money than he had ever had to make a movie. They were going to let him shoot the movie the way he wanted to and where he wanted to. And most importantly, Universal was ready to contractually give Cox the final cut on the film. Cox was reluctantly in. For Ed Harris, one of the most liberal actors in a town that isn't quite as liberal as everyone outside of it thinks it is, would accept $50,000 to play William Walker turning down another movie that was willing to pay him $750,000. Everyone else, from Cox down to the production assistants, were working for scale. But the film almost didn't happen when the bonding company Universal had hired to ensure the production threatened to pull their support for the film just days before the scheduled March 12, 1987 production start date. The bonding company's reason for almost canceling the production? They went over the finances of the film and noticed that the other $3 million for the production would be coming directly from the Sandinista government themselves, through their cinema division in Cine. Sid Scheinberg, the president of Universal, personally called the bonding company to remind them of just how much business the studio has provided to them, often without incident, and Cox and his crew would roll cameras on schedule. The vast majority of the film would shoot in Granada the town that William Walker had burned to the ground 130 years earlier. Replicas of the 1850s buildings would be built on the outskirts of town, as would several buildings meant to represent San Francisco of the day. Like William Walker, Alex Cox understood the need for good press, and he would invite both Lloyd Grove of the Washington Post and Patrick Goldstein of the Los Angeles Times to come down to Nicaragua and have total freedom to document the production. Goldstein's article in the April 19, 1987 edition of the Los Angeles Times 
and Grove's article in the August 20th edition of The Post would both be titled, Hollywood Invades Nicaragua. Both would be rather flattering, although because of the time difference between their set visits, Grove's article would include the unfortunate reporting of two road accidents directly related to the production. One where the lead 18-wheel truck, as part of a caravan bringing the camera equipment in from Mexico, broadsided a pickup truck parked on the side of the highway, which killed a Guatemalan man. The other, finding a 10-year-old boy crushed under the wheels of a production truck when it passed too close to the boy as he rode a horse down the road, which spooked the animal and threw the boy off at the absolute worst moment. Cox would pay for the young boy's funeral and compensate the family for their loss. It also didn't help morale when a young American named Benjamin Linder, who was backpacking his way through Central America, was captured and executed by the Contras in the northern part of the country during the middle of production. But as tough as the production was, there would be moments of unexpected joy. Joe Strummer, the guitarist of The Clash, who had struck up a friendship with Cox after working on both Sid and Nancy and Straight to Hell, would join the production in a small role. And he would regularly entertain the cast and crew with his guitar during downtime. Peter Gabriel, who was on tour in Central America during filming, had heard about the crazy American and Brits making a movie in Nicaragua and made sure to stop by for a visit one afternoon as they were making their way through the country on a bus supplied by the Sandinista Association of Cultural Workers, no less. While eating lunch with the cast and crew during a break in shooting, Gabriel would invite two indigenous Nicaraguan musicians in to play songs for everyone, and he would document the proceedings on his Nikon camera. Once filming was completed on May 15th, Cox headed back to Los Angeles to edit the film, although he would take a small crew to Arizona in late August for a few pickup shots. Strummer, who had spent the entire production with the crew, had recorded many a local musician in Granada during the shoot, and would compose the score for the film based on the snippets he recorded in the wild, as well as music he recorded in his hotel room with Xander Schloss, the bassist for the Los Angeles punk band The Circle Jerks, who fans of Alex Cox's movie know best as Kevin the Nerd, from Repo Man. The completed movie had its world premiere on December 2, 1987 at the Lemley Monica Fourplex, just off the beach in Santa Monica, and Cox would make sure it was a fundraiser for the government of El Salvador, which itself was fighting its own war against U.S.-backed rebel forces. Two days later, Universal would open the film on three screens in New York City, the Waverly Theater near Washington Square, the Sutton in Midtown Manhattan, and the Metro on the Upper West Side. On two screens in Los Angeles, the Beverly Center Cinemas and the AMC Century 14, at the Kabuki 8 in San Francisco, and on three other screens in three other major markets. And in its first three days of release, the film would gross $99,800 from those nine screens. But the reviews were savage. Most of the critics thought Ed Harris was great as Walker, but they had plenty of trouble with Cox's blatant and purposeful use of anachronisms, including helicopters, cars, full-color magazines, and Coca-Cola bottles meant to highlight Cox's wanting to make sure the viewers understood the parallels between Walker's time and the modern day. In week two, Universal would only add three screens in two other markets, but the overall gross would drop to $42,718, and Universal would quickly cut the movie loose. In week three, the screen count would drop from 12 to 6, 
and the gross for that third week would fall to just $17,869. And then his fourth week, which was Christmas week, when the vast majority of movies see a major uptick in ticket sales because people are off work and kids are out of school, the R-rated Walker would only play on three screens and gross just $6,650, and it was pretty much out of theaters by New Year's Day. Although I was living in Santa Cruz at the time, I saw Walker at the AMC Century 14 during a short visit to Los Angeles in early December 1987. Linda, the mother of my then-girlfriend Rachel, had recently separated from Rachel's father and moved from Santa Cruz to Los Angeles. Most of my family was still in Los Angeles, and I hadn't seen them since August, so the two of us took a road trip down to spend some time with our families and see movies. Despite the fact that it was just the two of us together on the road trip, somehow we ended up catching up with my two best friends from Santa Cruz, Dick Hollywood and Beach, along with Dick's friend Bronco, who I didn't get along with much. They apparently had nothing better to do that week than to head down to Los Angeles as well, crash at the house of one of Beach's relatives who also lived down there, and join me for several movie-going excursions to see movies that hadn't opened in Santa Cruz yet and would not for several more weeks. Sometimes Rachel joined us, like when we went to see Good Morning Vietnam at the Cinerama Dome or Moonstruck at the Egyptian in Westwood, not to be confused with the Egyptian in Hollywood. But sometimes she'd hang out with her mom while the boys ran off to see The Last Emperor, playing at the Universal City Cineplex, Hope and Glory, playing at the AMC Century 14, or Walker, also at the Century 14. We saw a lot of movies that week. And while they were all quite good, I was especially excited to see Walker because Cox was the filmmaker whose sensibilities I most connected with at the time. It would be years before I fully appreciated Bertolucci or Borman on a stronger level, but Cox was punk and new and told stories about crazy misfits in exciting fashion. Now, normally I hate the use of anachronisms in movies and television. Ask my friends or my long-suffering wife how much I hate Stranger Things because of all the anachronisms buried in its poorly researched text. But Cox was strategically using them on purpose to make sure the viewers got the juxtaposition between then and now. For me, it was exciting and bold and intoxicating. But audiences and critics weren't ready for it yet. Over the course of the past 35 years, the film has been revisited and reassessed enough where now it's better appreciated, and thankfully, the film is not as hard to find as many of the films we've featured on this show over the past three years, thanks to the Criterion Collection. Criterion would originally release the film on DVD in February of 2008, and would be upgraded to a Blu-ray release this past April. The new Blu-ray is packed with a number of bonus contents, including a feature commentary between Cox and Wurlitzer that is worth your attention. If you just want to stream the movie, you can do so on the Criterion channel. It's been years since I've seen Walker, but every time I have watched, I am fascinated at just how good a filmmaker Alex Cox is. He was able to coax one of Ed Harris's best performances out of him, even though it's clear that both Cox and Harris absolutely loathe William Walker as a person and a character. The film is constantly making Walker out to be a joke, having the narrator be as optimistic about Walker's progress in Nicaragua, while showing that this is likely Walker's own delusional thoughts as the actions on screen betray what were being told on the soundtrack. After Walker, Cox would have some trouble getting another movie made. Some say he was blackballed and parked for continuing to work on a screenplay for an unnamed studio during the 1988 Writer Guild strike 
even though he was not a member of the WGA. Some say he was just too much trouble to deal with. He was, according to him, the person who brought Mars attacks to the attention of Warner Brothers, having spent years developing a script based on his favorite set of trading cards from his youth, along with John Davidson, the producer of Robocop. But Cox would eventually be removed from the project in favor of Tim Burton. Cox was hired to write and direct a movie based on Hunter S. Thompson's seminal book Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in 1992. As the company that owned the film rights to the book needed to get a film into production within four months before they lost the rights to the book. And it would be during Cox's writing of the screenplay with Todd Davies that Johnny Depp and Benicio del Toro would agree to make the film. But Hunter S. Thompson would not approve of the script that Cox and Davies wrote, and Cox would be fired from the project after earning his $60,000 screenwriting fee. When Terry Gilliam finally made the film several years later, Cox and Davies would be given credit for their contributions to the screenplay, even though Gilliam argued none of their material made it into the final film, and that Cox and Davies were neither the first nor the last people to try and adapt Thompson's book to the screen. Since 1990, Cox's work as a director has come outside the Hollywood studio system. Between 1991, when he directed the Spanish-language drama Highway Patrolman, and 2017, when his tombstone Rashomon was completed, he would write and direct nine films. His last two, Tombstone Rashomon and 2014's Bill the Galactic Hero, were shot, as he originally wanted to do back in the early 80s, guerrilla-style, and crowdfunded through Kickstarter and Indiegogo. He even made a sort of remake to Repo Man in 2009 called Repo Chick, which he shot with a number of actors from Repo Man, playing different roles, in front of a green screen at a cost of one-fifth the budget of the first film, but 25 years later. Since 2012, Cox has been teaching film production and screenwriting at the University of Colorado in Boulder, where current and former students were able to get real-world film production experience making Build a Galactic Hero and Tombstone Rashomon. And that, my friends, is the end of our short run of shows about the 80s movies of Alex Cox. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again next week when episode 87 about the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the 8th dimension is released. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website at the80smoviepodcast.com for extra materials about Alex Cox and Walker. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. (laughs) 